This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. Today we're in a series uh, called Prepare for the Square. We've been walking through a series together as a church Next week, as Craig mentioned, we're going to have our Giving Sunday where we're going to commit our financial resources to the uprooting and the relocating and the replanting to Frisco Square. Now, this move represents a tremendous opportunity in regards to new ministries, and it's a great responsibility for us in regards to sacrifice. And so we've been in a series talking about preparation. We want to be the people now that God is calling us to be the people then. We don't imagine that we're just going to arrive on the square and suddenly be changed without preparation. Preparation isn't glamorous work. It's hard work. It's sacrificial work. It's behind the scenes. And it's necessary. You ask any football player what the summer looks like before a championship season in the fall, and he's going to talk about hard, sacrificial, unglamorous work. If a soldier knows he's going into battle, he's got to prepare for it. If a farmer or a businessman wants to see a harvest, he knows he's got to prepare. And if a church wants to make disciples of people for generations to come in the center of a diverse, growing city, the church has got to prepare. And so today we're talking about one aspect of preparation, which is prepare to care. Now, when I say the word care, you might think of the verb form of that word, the feeling of concern or the feeling of interest, attaching importance to something. And I definitely mean that, but I mean more than that. There's also a noun definition of care, and that's being the provision of the care that you feel. So it's both feeling and acting. So if the question this morning was, how do we prepare to both feel the way that we're supposed to feel in such a way that we act the way that God would have us to act for all the many people coming to Frisco Square, what should we do? And I think the short answer to that, the first place that we start is not by looking at ourselves or our lack of resources, but by looking at Jesus who embodied care. So today we're going to be looking at Matthew 14 verse 13 through 21. So if you're new to the Bible, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and you just thumb through the Bible to chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at 13 through 21. It's a familiar passage. Maybe you've heard this or read this many times. I'm going to read it and then pray and then preach from there. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place, by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. 
They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Father, we ask that you would allow us, just like these disciples, to give to you everything and all that we have, and that we would give our lives to you. And we ask that you would bless us, and we ask that you would break us, and that you would send us to the crowds, and that we would live as the sent people of God, as you called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Something of an outline that might be helpful as we go through this together is uh, pretty simple. It all starts with P. That's what preachers love to do. Uh, It would start with the people, the problem, and the promise. So I'm just going to walk through this talking about the people and then talk about the problem and then the promise that Jesus offers to them and then talk a little bit about how this applies to Frisco Square and the move over there. Let's first start with the people in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now the question might be, why is Jesus withdrawing from a place? Why is he getting into a boat? And why is he going to a desolate place by himself? Well, the context is that Jesus is grieving the loss of a close friend and relative who is John the Baptist, who was just in prison and killed because of Herod. Herod, on his birthday, wanted to please a dancer, and so he had John beheaded in prison, Matthew 14 says, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who was the dancer, and she brought it to her mom, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and after all of that, they went and told Jesus. I mean, this could not be more raw, graphic, tragic, and disturbing news for a disciple and disturbing for Jesus as well. It's brutal murder. I don't think you can call it anything else but that. Reminded the disciples of what was to come potentially by following Jesus. If you follow a radical like Jesus, the same fate could meet you. And this murder certainly reminded Jesus of how he would be humiliated on the cross in his death. So we understand a little bit about why Jesus would withdraw from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, feeling the grief that he's experiencing. In Mark 6, it describes it this way. Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. It's important to see that Jesus is a good shepherd that cares about the rest of his disciples. He knows about the physical toll that the ministry and following him takes on them. He knows about the emotional state of his disciples, and he desires their rest. But notice what happens. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him 
on foot from the towns. The crowds decide on their own and unprovoked to interrupt this little retreat that they are planning for. In Matthew 4, great crowds follow Jesus everywhere. It says great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Translation, everywhere Jesus went, the crowds followed Jesus. They wanted to be close to him. They wanted him to heal them. They wanted his fellowship. They wanted his friendship. People were attracted to Jesus. All kinds of people were attracted to Jesus. And in this case, plans for needed rest have been interrupted by people once again. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder if in your life, plans for rest have ever been interrupted by people. I can think of several moments in my life where I have not been thrilled about people, but the first thing that comes to mind is when my boys, who are now seven, were really little babies, and they were eight months apart, and it seemed like just when we would lay down to sleep, they would wake up, and then we were right back up with them, and sleep was interrupted. Our plans were were interrupted again and again, and it felt like after about five or six months of that, that we stepped back and said, you know, that felt like one really long day with just little naps in between. Rest was hard. But I slowly learned that in parenting, interruptions are just part of the job description. And in a similar way, Jesus gave these former professional fishermen a whole new job description, and he summarized it like this. He said, you follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And part of learning to be fishers of men is understanding your job description to make disciples who make disciples involves interruptions as part and, pos- and, part and parcel of the job description. And they learn this slowly. They know that if I follow Jesus, I got to plan on the unplanned crowds that are right in front of me. So notice what happens in verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus heals people that are sick. And this ministry, this action takes place because he feels something for them. Compassion. And this compassion flows from his seeing them in their condition. So note the, the order. He saw, he felt compassion, and he acted. When Jesus observes the human condition, he sees the effects of sin and the curse of sin. He sees their weakness, their emotional weakness, their physical weakness. He sees their spiritual oppression. When he looks out at this crowd right now, he sees the need in front of him. And more than that, he felt compassion. This Greek word, as we've talked about in the past weeks, means something that flows from the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, the this, this stuff in here. And it's the seat of the affection. So when Jesus looked and he saw the human condition, he felt something. He, he freely felt something. But he overflowed with compassion for people. Matthew 9 describes it like this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. He sees the need and then he acts. Notice what he does. He healed their sick. He didn't just go indifferent or isolate himself from the need. He moves towards the tension. He moves towards the need. He moves towards the mess and begins healing people. Now, over and over again in the New Testament, we see Jesus being interrupted by people, being interrupted by the crowds, and he stops and he heals people. There's this one story about uh, Jairus who comes to him and he needs his, his son, his daughter uh, healed. And Jesus is on the way to heal Jairus' daughter when all of a sudden there's this woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years and she doesn't have any resources. She's a widow. She doesn't have any kids. She doesn't have any money because she spent all of her money on the doctors that couldn't help her. But she hears about the healer She pursues the healer and she reaches out with faith, believing that if I just touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be healed. And she is healed when she touches his garment. And Jesus, perceiving this, says, who was it that touched me? And then when all denied it, which is interesting, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you. That's typical of his ministry. They surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of everyone that she indeed had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So in the midst of this healing ministry, he's interrupted and he cares for the crowds. And Jesus does this all the time. And there's a problem that takes place right in the middle of revival, (laughs) right in the middle of healing, right in the middle of the people. There's a problem. Well, what's the problem? Well, look at verse 15. This is the problem. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and they said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, here's the situation. Um, There's a problem regarding efficiency. Uh, The day is over, and this is a desolate place. So Jesus, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but there's no food around here. And Jesus, not sure if you're aware, uh, but we're out of time and it's growing cold. And their retreat was interrupted again by this crowd and this ministry opportunity. Now, I don't know if you know this, maybe the disciples knew this and forgot, but Jesus created all food. He really did. Scripture describes him as the one who created everything and all places, including desolate places, out of nothing. He didn't reach into a bag and pull the stuff out and then create something from there. He just spoke it into existence and it was. Jesus, who is eternal, created time itself. So their observations and their communication of this to Jesus is pretty profound. 
to communicate to the one who created all things that there's a lack. The one who created time itself, that they're running out of it. Maybe they didn't realize that with Jesus, there are no desolate places anywhere. Maybe they didn't realize that the day is never over if Jesus is there. Maybe you've grown weary and you're looking at some situation in your life and you're saying, this is a desolate place. And the day is now over. But maybe you need to be reminded that you're not in a desolate place if Jesus is near. Well, they had forgotten that like we do a lot. And they look at this crowd and they see this crowd as a threat. They're not warm to it. They're not cheery to the crowd. This crowd is threatening their rest. This crowd threatens their hunger. This crowd threatens their time together, remember? And this crowd threatened their fellowship with Jesus. And we can all feel this way when we look out at people sometimes and look out at the crowds in front of us. We can be threatened by the crowds and all their many problems and all their many messes. And we can, like the disciples, say we want the crowds to be sent away. I like my relationships the way they are. I like my comforts. I like my time with Jesus. (laughs) I don't want to be bothered. Like these disciples, we can say, well, the problem is the crowd and the solution is for the crowd to leave. Well, look at what happens in verse 16. Jesus doesn't see the problem quite like that. He says in verse 16, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. I mean, Jesus seems to completely ignore the recommendation of his disciples. He takes their summary of the issue and the way that this is going to be solved, and it totally doesn't land on him, and he ignores what they are suggesting. But more than that, he shocks them by turning around the responsibility on them and says, you give them something to eat. We're not going anywhere, he says. Now, keep in mind, this is 5,000 men, but probably 10 or 15,000 people. And so for him to say, you need to provide for this enormous crowd would be something like if you're a private in an army and you go up to a general and you, you tell the general the situation and he turns back to you and says, well, private, you need to feed them and come up with a solution. Now, Jesus is not misinformed are cruel or illogical. He's not opposed or aloof to their understanding of the law of nature. After all, he created all the laws of nature. I mean, if you have a desolate land and you have limited time and a lack of resources, well, then you've got a wall in front of you. But Jesus wants to teach his disciples something about his power in the midst of limited resources and something about how he expects his disciples' expectations of his ability to increase in moments like this. One ESV commentator said it like this, Jesus clearly intends for the disciples to do what he says and trust him for the outcome. Well, 
what will they do? Well, let's see what happens in verse 17. They said to him, we only or we have only five loaves and two fish. So they take what they have and they say, here's what it is, Jesus. Five loaves, two fish, 10, 15,000 people. And so they summarize what they have in their resources with the word only. And only says a lot, doesn't it? Only communicates a lot. Only represents everything they've got. Only represents all that they've got. Only represents how they perceive their resources. It's a negative view of everything that they've got, of all that they've got. And it reveals their discouragement about the situation. I mean, few things can be more discouraging than viewing your everything, your all, and describing it as only. I mean, five loaves and two fish, that's an abundant lunch for one person or maybe two people. But it's only a pitiful lunch for 10,000 people. The crowds seem to make the perception of everything that they have look very small and hindered and limited. And only describes how often we view what God's given to us. Think about your time, your talents, your abilities. We can attach that word to many things and say, Jesus, this is only five loaves and two fish. And what are they in the face of so many people? Well, what does Jesus do with their only? I mean, the story could end right there, right? I mean, it could end right there. This is what we have. This isn't adequate for that. But what does Jesus do? Look at verse 18. It's very important that we see how he responds to everything that they've got. He said, bring them here to me. Every word there is very important. Take what you have, bring them here, and bring them here to me. I mean, Jesus doesn't teach them to think more positively about the situation. He doesn't rebuke them for their frowns. He doesn't say, man, you guys are such downers. Wish you guys would just turn that frown upside down and stop being so pessimistic. I mean, you're, so, you're just glasses half empty kind of people. I mean, look, look positively on the situation. He doesn't try to spin that. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't say, you know what? You need to trust in yourselves, form a committee, and make a plan. Take the five loaves and the two fish and figure out. You, can, you guys, you know, make a round hole fit in a peg and you can do that. I believe in your ability to do something like that. He doesn't do any of that. He says, you draw close to me and you put everything that you have in my hands. He says, the only solution to the problem is not found in you. It's found in me. The only thing that you ought to do right now is draw close to me and put everything that you have right here in my hands. And trust me with what you can't do. Put your only there. Give me your limited resources. Give me everything. Put them right here. Now we know this, man, this requires faith. Faith. 
And I guess it would require faith because Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's drawing close to to God and trusting him and believing that God is a rewarder for anybody who draws close to him and seeks him. You see, the disciples look, see the problem as the crowd and they view the solution as the crowd leaving. But to Jesus, the problem is the disciples and the solution is faith. I mean, this is, this is really a picture of grace, isn't it? If you're here for the very first time, we call our, our church Grace Church. I go around the community in Frisco and so, some people say, are you, the, uh, are you the Grace United Church, Grace Methodist Church? Like, no, we're not united. We have no methods. Uh, we, we're, we're just grace. Um, but this is a picture of what grace is all about. We've fallen short and we have sinned against God's glory. And the distance between us and a relationship with God is infinite and impossible for us to travel. So God, in grace, sends Jesus down to us to die and rise for sinners so that we can have a relationship with God by simply trusting in Jesus by faith alone. But this trusting in Jesus involves bringing everything that we have to him, putting our lives, as it were, in his hands and entrusting our future to him. Well, what happens if you do that? What happens if you do that for the very first time if you've never trusted in Jesus? What happens if you're a Christian for 30 years and you believe the Lord's calling you to trust him with something really big in your life? What's, what's going to happen? Well, let's look at the promise in verse 19. The promise. Notice what happens. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So Jesus orders this hungry crowd to sit down on the grass. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think one of the reasons is because in Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Do you remember That psalm, growing up, hearing that, maybe your grandma or somebody quoted that to you. He makes his disciples lie down in green pastures and leads them beside still waters. He asks his sheep to sit while the shepherd stands and rises and shows his ability to his sheep while they rest. Jesus is a good shepherd And he loves to show his ability and his strength in the midst of our weakness, in our inability. So he takes the five loaves and he takes the two fish in his hands. And now the question becomes, what's going to happen? Now the only is in the hands of everything. Now the limited is in the hands of an unlimited God. And in a sense, their future is in his hands. It's only an immediate future, but it represents everything that they have right in front of them. Their future is, is right there. What's he going to do with their future? And maybe you're wondering that too. Can I trust my future, my immediate future, 
into those nail-scarred hands? Can I trust my eternal future into those nail-scarred hands? But maybe they wondered, could there be better hands to hold our future? And that's a good question to ask ourselves. Could there be better hands today to hold our future? To hold our time? To hold our relationships? To hold our children? To hold our failures? To hold our money? I think this is the hardest thing to grasp as a follower of Jesus personally. I think I can control things. I think I'm the owner of things and I'm controlling and managing things that I own. And I forget that everything belongs to Jesus. He's the owner and I'm just the manager of his gifts. And so when he asks me, like he asked those disciples, Rob, put these things in my hands. What he's asking me to do is just trust him with what he's already entrusted to me. Well, what does Jesus do when he has control of what we give him. When we give to him what he's already entrusted to us, when we give to him what he's asked of us, what's he going to do? Well, notice what happens. The first thing that he does is kind of surprising. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. He blessed it. It means exactly what you think it means. When you go ahead and have lunch today, nobody think about lunch, by the way. Uh, every time I hear lunch in a sermon, I start, my stomach starts to growl. Blessing means here what you think it means. It means to look up and to say thanks, to give thanks for it. Jesus looks up to heaven and gives thanks while everybody else is looking down in shame. While everybody else looks down at the meager offering In shame and disappointment, he looks up in praise and thanksgiving. And that's where he starts. It's a really wonderful place to start. It's a great place to start in the midst of brokenness and weakness is to look up to God and give thanks and praise. But he does something else. He not only looks up to heaven, he said a blessing. Do you see that? He spoke something. To speak a blessing over and over again in the Bible is to confer a benefit on. So the the substance doesn't change. The thing doesn't change. And in this case, it's still bread and it's still fish. But now an invisible purpose is now attached to this bread and this fish. And something successful is going to come about through this bread and through this fish. And now it's going to be sent out by God to do something for his glory. It's really a picture of what he does with all of his disciples when he blesses us through union with Jesus and sends us out on mission to be the sent people of God. Well, what does he do with blessed things? Well, what does he do with the bread and the fish? Well, notice he doesn't multiply the wholeness. He doesn't like reach into this magic hat and then pull out five new freshly formed, perfectly formed bread and, and put together fish, just like what he had. He doesn't do that at all. He starts by breaking the bread and the loaves. He actually starts to make a mess. What they gave him was whole, five whole loaves. And Jesus, having blessed it, now 
breaks it. Kind of a, a principle here that to be on mission with Jesus is a messy mission. And to make disciples means that we're going to involve ourselves in a mess. And Jesus proceeds to make a mess and breaks the loaves into small pieces. Well, breaking represents a couple things, I think. The first thing I think it represents is multiplication and growth. That it's, it started a big piece and, and whole and like this, but as soon as Jesus starts to break it, it starts to exponentially multiply. It looks different. It's useful. It's now purposeful. It's now sent out. And it doesn't ever seem to run out. As long as Jesus blesses it, and as long as Jesus breaks it, the bread and the fish don't seem to ever run out because he just multiplies it. But breaking in scripture also represents change and repentance. Maybe you've read in Psalm 51, a familiar passage, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In college, I used to sing this song with my friends, and it went like this, break me, O God, let me fall down. I bring me to you, my face to the ground. Pour out your grace. Tell me I'm free. Rivers of mercy wash over me. And now I can worship you. That's what being broken means. It doesn't mean like physical breaking. It means breaking off sin, breaking off shame, breaking off anything that robs God of his glory and steals our joy and our freedom. And this is how Jesus lived his life, broken and poured out to save the lost. Maybe it's been a while for you that you've really felt broken in a good way before God. Maybe you're afraid of putting your life into his hands and you're wondering, well, if I do that, whether it's with my heart or this relationship or this thing that's broken in my life, if I entrust myself to his hands, what's going to happen? What's going to happen if if Jesus blesses me like that, and if Jesus breaks me and makes me useful like that. What's, what, what then? Well, notice what happens in verse 19. He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So what's really strange here is that Jesus gives back to the disciples what the disciples have given to him. Sometimes when we think about giving anything to God, we, we think of it about it as this cloud in the sky that will one day have to remind God about that time that you gave that offering at that service or blah, blah, blah. I mean, you, you're like, we're going to have this conversation in heaven. God, do you remember that time that I gave that to you? And I, I don't remember receiving anything immediately, so I was trusting in something eternal happening there. And we just think that we're going to have to remind God of what we've given to him and that we're, we're, we're maybe not going to receive anything back. But here, they receive something back immediately. Jesus says, trust me, put this in my hands, and I'll give this back to you. It's kind of like me with my kids. They're fighting over a toy or something. And I'm saying, uh, let me have what you're fighting over. Give this to me entrust this to me. I promise I'll give it back to him. Sometimes I have to say that over again. I'll give it back. I'll give it back to you. 
Well, Jesus gave back to the disciples the bread that they released to him, but now it was blessed with God's favor. And the principle here is that whatever we give to him, he will give it back with God's favor on it and multiplied to serve others. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about if you give a financial gift in faith to Jesus or to the Generations Fund or something like that. If you give $1, God's going to give you $2 or something like that. Remember, what they received back looked different than what they gave. So it could be exponential joy. It could be multiplied hope. It could be increased generosity, but it will be given back with God's favor and multiplied to serve others. And this is a constant concern regarding giving. We bump up against this all the time. It's a faith time. It's a tension that we all feel in our hearts whenever it's time to give to the Lord. We feel like the Lord's calling us to give something sacrificial to him. But you know what? This isn't new. It's not new to us. Peter, who I love because he was just such a stream of consciousness kind of guy and just spoke for the group, speaks for us oftentimes, had this same dilemma. He said to Jesus one time, Jesus, we've left everything and we followed you. In other words, are we going to be rewarded for this? Is there something to this that is worth the sacrifice? And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, land with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, you will not be able to outrun me. You will not be able to outpace me. You will not be able to outgive me. You can trust the fact that anything you give to me is not a matching gift. I will top that in your life. It will look different. It will be useful. It will be on mission. It will be purposeful. It will be joyful for you, but you will not outgive me. You will be blessed, you will be broken, and you will be given away to the crowds, and you'll experience me through all of that. Well, there's one more promise, I think, that Jesus is teaching us today, and that's found in verse 20 through 21. Notice what happens. And they all ate and were satisfied. So just pause there for a moment. 10 to 15,000 people. Just imagine the, a rock concert or something like that with so many people around and now they're sitting down in the green grass and they've eaten, every one of them, including the kids. Kind of tough sometimes to feed our kids, isn't it? Well, they're satisfied apparently. All of them, they all ate and they were all satisfied. And note, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces that were left over. If you're new to the Bible, 12 is really significant in this passage because they were 12 disciples who were looking at the meager bread and the meager fish. And Jesus is speaking something to them right now that if you trust me on mission and if you give me everything that you have on mission, you will find rest. You will sit down with a basket full at some point, eating and being satisfied and having served and spent your life for the crowds 
and filled up with joy. Each basket full communicated this to every one of the disciples. Each disciple got a basket full. And Jesus communicating the whole time, I will give you rest in desolate places among hungry crowds. Rest for your souls is found when you take my yoke upon you and my yoke for this world. You're going to find rest for your souls. So let me close by just mentioning a few things about how this relates to Frisco Square. Well, like the disciples, I think we have people in front of us. Crowds in front of us. I read an article that I shared at the meeting the other night that every four minutes and 10 seconds, a new person moves into the DFW area. It's one of the fastest growing metroplexes in the United States. And in that huge metroplex of 6 million plus people, Frisco continues to be right there at the top as far as a place that people are moving to. So you've got a lot of people. I mean, you've got lots of families, big families, small families, broken families, teens with lots of questions, people from different religious backgrounds moving into the city, single working moms, overworked dads, out-of-work dads, church people, unchurch people, de-church people, financially stressed, stressed out people, addicted people, hungry people, needy people, impoverished people, people, lots and lots and lots of people moving into the city and moving into the center of the city. There's going to be about 3,000 to 4,500 people within walking distance of, of the land that we've been given. So just imagine that. I mean, in the midst of all of this activity that we didn't plan for, we didn't create, it's just being created by sovereign God, we've been given the equivalent of two and a half million dollars in free land and parking right in the hub. I mean, it's like we're in the boat going across the lake and there's just a sea of people in front of us. I mean, it's just amazing invitation. I mean, it's kind of like we got invited to the dance by the most popular football player around and we're awkward and strange and we don't know how to dance. And this is an invitation. God's saying, Follow me into this crowd. Sit down at the table of City Hall. Sit down at the table of the library. Sit down at the table of Pizza Hut Park. Sit down at the table of the square. Draw close to the people. And people are messy. So like the disciples, we've got a problem. There's a whole lot of messy people. And when we see a whole lot of messy people, we see a whole lot of potential problems... We can look at our resources and we can look at our limitations and we could define everything that we have to offer as only. What am I for so many people? What will this cost my comforts? What will this cost my time? What will this cost my relationships? What will this cost me financially to give sacrificially to the Generations Fund? We had a a time where we just gathered a cross-section of the church and we said, okay, here's... Here's the opportunity. Here are the people 
What's the Lord stirring in your heart? Because we want to hear how the Lord is at work and the dreams that he's inspiring in the hearts of the people of Grace Church. And people mentioned all kinds of things. What about compassion ministries like ESL classes and life skill classes? What about reaching into the business community? What about developing a network for orphan care or Hispanic evangelistic ministries or hosting events for our city? What about reaching kids through vacation Bible schools and solid rock clubs or mom's ministries or job networking events or middle and high school ministries? I mean, the opportunities really are are endless. But you might see all that and think, I don't know where I'm going to find the kind of heart and the kind of compassion for that. Well, Paul Miller in his book writes some really helpful words. His book, When Love Walked Among Us, he wrote this. When we confront a new or difficult situation, we can become confused or or overwhelmed. Often we don't even know how to begin, but we can look. We might not feel compassion, but we can concentrate on the other person. By keeping the other person in front of us, we are opening the door to compassion. He said that there's a great study. If you just note how many times Jesus sees the crowd, what follows is he feels compassion. It starts, I think, by looking at the crowds. And instead of seeing a problem, seeing an opportunity in front of us. And like the disciples, note this, we've got a promised redeemer. Somebody that can buy back anything that we give to him. Somebody that says to us right now, bring me what you have. So we can say, I've only got this. And he says, bring me what you have and put what you have in my hands. Craig mentioned a few weeks ago that the goal of, of this year's Generations Fund in, uh, in pledges and in offerings this year is $700,000. I mean, that strikes me as a big number. It's a, it's a big goal. It's a, it's a big goal in order to move over to Frisco Square and be a part of what God's calling us to be. But let me just make a comment here. I, I believe if we all jump in feet first into this, we can do this. We can do this. I actually worked, interestingly, between being a pastor in one context and being a pastor here for about three years, I worked for two different fundraising companies that help churches do exactly what we are doing. And I, I met and talked to hundreds, literally hundreds of pastors in that three-year term. And I my perspective changed a little bit about the opportunity that, that a building as a ministry tool does for a church. And occasionally, not, not every time, but occasionally, I would run into a church where land was deeded over to them. And it was amazing. And we would talk about it in the office. I can't believe that this thing happened. And in those situations, oftentimes the church would raise two times, three times their operating budget in order to make good on this, this gift, in order to make disciples. And it was just really exciting to, to hear about those stories. So when we were given this, this land and this opportunity, it just struck me as astonishing and amazing that we get, we get to be a part of that, that that's part of our story as well. But you know what? This, 
this goal is actually really small in comparison to what Jesus is asking of us and what he's asking of his disciples. Because he's not asking for just a, just a pledge as important as that is. He's saying, give me your life. Put your talents in my hands. Put that, that thing that you think is not redeemable or useful for the mission field. Put that in my hands and see what I can do with that. Trust me with that. We can reach people together with what you have and what God's entrusted to you. But we've got to trust the promise. We've actually got to put what we have into his hands and trust that when we do that, he's going to bless it. (laughs) He's going to break it. He's going to break us. If we give our hearts to him and our lives to him, he's going to multiply us. I mean, I think this means we've got to prepare to change. We've got to be be prepared that as he sends us out exponentially to our city, that we've got to adopt to new rhythms of the city. We've got to go where people are. We've got to be willing to stretch our relational friendships. And most of all, I think we've got to care deeply for people, for as he gives us away, we're going to experience that there's a lot of people in front of us and a lot of joys of living on mission together with Jesus. Well, just ask yourself this question. Have you ever given anything to Jesus that he didn't give back to you a hundredfold? Can you, can you think back on something that you've given that you didn't receive? Well, lastly, like the disciples, I think we first have to trust the provision of Jesus on mission. If we're going to be the sent people of God, we cannot focus purely on our sentness, and we cannot focus purely on the rest that might take place afterwards or something like that. We've just got to focus on Jesus, and in following Jesus, we will find rest. That's his promise. As you follow me wherever I go, into whatever place, and straight into the crowds even, you're going to find rest for your souls, and you're going to adopt my purposes in your life. There was this old missionary named J. Campbell White, who said of his missionary life, which I I pray we adopt a missionary mindset. I believe that we are the sent people of God to this city. Now, God may send some people in our church to other cities and other cross-cultural ministries, but for sure he has sent us as the people of God, blessed and broken and poured out for our city as missionaries, and we must adopt a missional and a missionary kind of mentality when it comes to making disciples. J. Campbell White said this, nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose towards the world he came to redeem. He said, fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast to the boundless an abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plan. So would you just join me in pushing aside husks and ashes that can just creep into our lives and just recognize we've got a mission in front of us, we've got a great purpose in front of us, and we've got this redeemer in front of us with nail-scarred hands saying, put what you have in my hands and you're going to find rest for your souls. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.